and welcome to Nourish. My name is Kasha, and I'm an entrepreneur, a longtime meditator, and a student of Chinese medicine. My mission with this podcast is to share the tools and practices to help you integrate your whole self into every aspect of your world. As someone who is both a type A high achiever and a deeply spiritual, vulnerable, and empathetic being, I know firsthand how it feels to be living a double life, showing up one way at work, a different way alone, and struggling to reconcile the two. This disintegration of authenticity is one of the biggest causes of burnout, health flares, and anxiety. For me, understanding how the mind-body connection is crucial to health and success, cultivating a strong sense of inner self, and applying the healing philosophies of Chinese medicine and Zen Buddhism to my life has allowed me to lead from a completely heart-powered place, letting go of other people's judgments and finding peace in allowing my multi-dimensional being to shine. My hope is that this podcast may inspire you to do the same. I want to call out. It is a practice, it is a journey, but I believe it is the most important thing that we can do for our bodies, minds, and our ultimate potential. Enjoy. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have an incredible guest for you all, Mark Lesser, who is a CSO, executive coach, and Zen teacher known for his engaging experiential presentations that integrate mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices and trainings. A few impressive things included in Mark's portfolio include his background in helping to develop the world-renowned Search Inside Yourself program within Google. Mark is also the CEO of ZBA Associates, a executive development and leadership consulting company with a roster that includes Google, Twitter, Genentech, to name a few. And also he founded and was CEO of three highly successful companies and has an MBA degree in business from NYU. Now, those are all super impressive and cool, but what I found personally so fascinating is Mark's experience in Zen. Prior to his business and coaching career, Mark was a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years, as well as director of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, the first Zen monastery in the Western world. You better bet we dive into all things at the intersection of Zen, mindfulness, and business, starting with balancing, striving, with surrender and acceptance and how that can look like practically when you are leading and creating and trying to bring great things into the world. We talk about the difference between affirmations and faking it till you make it and compassion and the science behind how compassion may actually help us in the long run with reaching our goals. We dive into leading from a place of open-heartedness and surrender and how that can practically translate to the workplace. We dive into his new book, Finding Clarity, How Compassionate Accountability Builds Vibrant Relationships, Thriving Workplaces, and Meaningful Lives with defining compassionate accountability, sharing examples of what that can look like practically and what it doesn't look like. And of course, we dive into leadership and how to lead from a mission-driven place and how to find that if you feel like you've lost it. 
If you are an ambitious human looking to live a more mindful life and incorporate some practices from Zen into your world, maybe just experiment with it. This episode is for you. And without further ado, let's dive on into it and welcome Mark to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. It is such an honor. We were kind of laughing about how this has been such a long time coming. I feel like the anticipation has been building, but the timing could not be better because I know you have an incredible book that is coming out, which we're definitely going to dive into. But before we talk about that, I would love to start with a question that I ask every single guest, which is, what are three words that you would use to describe yourself? Ordinary, spiritual, and searcher. I love those. I have not heard ordinary before. (laughs) (laughs) I have not. I have not. And I'm curious, what exactly does that mean for you? Just so I I understand, because it brings up some definitions for me, but I'm curious what that means to you. Yeah, I think that in some way, I feel my own sense of maybe humility and appreciation for being alive. And I was going to say non-competitive, but actually I'm pretty competitive. And, you know, I recently was facilitating a leadership retreat recently. And one of the things that they did, they brought in someone to do a strengths finders exercise, which I had never done in any formal way. I'm certainly familiar with it. And out of the 34 strengths, the one that was number one for me was achiever. So now I'm going to change my word from ordinary to achiever. No, not really. Ordinary is still fine. I'm an ordinary achiever. At first I was like, man, how could that be? And then I thought, oh yeah, I've written five books and I'm doing all these things and I'm, um, I've am i started several companies. I guess achiever is probably a strength of mine. So I love that because I knew we would at some point segue into this somehow, because I I read on your website that you describe yourself as a stealth Zen teacher working in the business world. You have an MBA. (laughs) You've been the CEO of three companies. Okay. You're a five-time author. We definitely threw that in there. But you also lived at and eventually directed the Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, right? Yeah. And what I find so fascinating is that, and I participate in your weekly meditations, you live such a kind of blend of both achieving and competitive in these types of achieving and competitive environments and lifestyles as well as an author, as a CEO. But yet you also embody somebody who is very, I don't know if Zen would be the right way to describe it, but you do describe yourself as a stealth Zen teacher. And so how do you reconcile the two? They feel like such completely opposing sides of a coin. Well, I've been a serious Zen practitioner my whole adult life, and I'm actually an ordained Zen priest, which I don't usually use that word so much publicly, priest is such a, but I'm a Zen teacher. It all started, (laughs) or the big aha that I had in some way was my 10th year of living at the San Francisco Zen Center and being a director of Tassajara. Now, Tassajara is a Zen monastery, traditional Zen monastery in the winter, and then turns into a conference center. So it's like, you know, basically a conference center, small business with a staff of 60. and, And the big aha that I had was that Though I thought of myself as a Zen student, I was running a business. 
And everything about what we were doing had high standards for quality, for customer service, for the food we were providing. And that to me, there was something profound about what looked like these two things. Actually, this thing about leadership and spiritual practice, Zen practice, contemplative practice, that they actually went together really, really well. And, you know, it's interesting. I gave an example that I liked the other day about this strange blend of non-achievement and achievement. An example I like is if you're interviewing for a job, you are so much more attractive and you have such a better chance of getting the job if you're not striving for it. If you have a, they'll be lucky to have me attitude about it, that you just know what it is you have to offer and that that frees you up to excel and be open and creative, you know. And I think that was a experience that I had running Monastery Kitchen or being director of Tassajara. And there is something to me about cultivating that kind of attitude around acceptance. But at the same time, having a clear vision of what quality looks like or what success looks like or what I'm trying to, like, it's not that I don't want the job. Of course, I do want the job, but I'm not in there with that wanting, lacking, needing attitude. So much to dig into there (laughs) And, and just like so relatable for myself. And I know for this audience, I describe this audience as the mindful type A's out there. (laughs) The people who are kind of struggling with balancing, wanting to be present and content in the world, but also wanting to achieve and create. So I do have to dig into this. Like, how do you cultivate that sort of an attitude when people's livelihood is on the line? Like if you're running a business, you have salaries you're responsible for. There are deals that can make or break the business. Like you have a situation like Sometimes it's almost easier when there are situations that feel completely out of your control. Like let's say the SVB situation that happened, like a lot of people were caught off guard by that. Yet it feels so different when there's an element of, am I doing enough? Am I trying hard enough, right? Like to keep the ship afloat, keep it growing. How do you balance that with contentment and kind of that (laughs) non-achievement? Yeah. So this is, again, the other analogy I like a lot is sports. People are often surprised to find out that I'm kind of a sports addict. I am surprised, Mark. I am. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're a fan of one of the greatest basketball players ever, I mean, I could use many examples, but I'll use the example of Steph Curry. When Steph Curry is shooting a basket, he is not thinking about that he might miss it or worrying about it. He is just, I think, completely in that zone of enjoying it and making his best effort based on tons and tons and tons of practice. So it's interesting, meditation practice or mindfulness practice, one way to describe it is training yourself to let go of expecting things to be different than they are. But It doesn't mean that you're not honing the skills. If you're a business person, there's a lot of skills around marketing or finance or management or leadership, all those. It's this funny paradox. You know, it's similar to the other sports analogy I like, similar to the basketball one. A study was done showing kind of average golfers swinging at a golf ball and comparing their swing to a professional golfer. 
and it, it videos them when there's no ball, when they're just practicing. And for the average golfer, their swing is much closer to the professionals when there's no ball. Because just the fact of trying makes us stupid. Trying is extra. Some fear of missing. The time I experience it most viscerally is if I'm about to walk on stage to give a talk, right? I'm feeling nervous. There's butterflies in my stomach. There's a part of me that's saying, don't mess up, you know, or what if I forget my life? You know, all those, all those things are there. To me, the practice is to let all that go. It's there, let it go and just show up and just be literally practice enough of what I'm going to do so that I can just be in the moment there on stage giving a talk. One of my favorite quotes is the Pablo Casals, who was the world's greatest celloist, who someone asked him, right, don't you get nervous playing the cello in front of kings and queens? And he looks at the questioner puzzled and says, nervous? Why would I be nervous? All I'm thinking about is how can I love my audience? And I always bring up to myself that quote when I'm nervous, you know, when I'm about to do a workshop or a talk or, or anytime when I'm feeling, feeling that sense of stress to flip the switch to, it's not about me, right? And again, so much of meditation, mindfulness practice is training the mind and the body that it's not about me and I'm there to make an offering. That's such a beautiful, beautiful perspective. I'm hearing a lot of open-heartedness, an element of surrender playing into practice like this, which is just such a contrast to, I think, a lot of the practices that many of us who maybe came to meditation through related fields of personal development and whatnot, where there's this element of fake it till you make it, right? Like force yourself to believe in the outcome. I've always actually practiced that and I've found great success in the affirmations or believing that the outcome will be as I want it to be. But I realize over time that still leaves you attached to the outcome. But I am curious, actually, how does trust play into this? Because I'm hearing surrender, open-heartedness, like, is there inherent trust in that as well? And like, what does that look like if there's a release of the outcome? Yeah, for sure. There is definitely some trust or even faith in a certain way, belief. You know, it's interesting what you were just saying about, you know, this sort of positive thinking or there's some interesting studies that have been done in the realm of self-compassion that it has actually better outcomes, this sense of believing in yourself, loving yourself, being kind to yourself produces better outcomes than self-esteem. Self-esteem is more like saying positive things, but the other side of self-esteem is negative things. So it's like, it doesn't have that same depth of, I think, using the trusting yourself, appreciating yourself, loving yourself, as opposed to, oh, I'm good at this, or I'm going to accomplish this. There can be some positive, but there's more positive to that kind of building resilience or that building inner strength, that building that inner strength, building that kind of firm belief in your own ability to solve problems. I love that. That's such a powerful reframe and it feels very unconditional as you say it, right? Because if you're looking at the affirmation side of you will nail this interview, I would do that. I would like write down affirmations before going into meetings. If you fail, then it's like, can you trust yourself? 
right? That's right. It's dualistic in a way. And going back to these various examples, whether it's the basketball Steph Curry example or the golf or the interview, it's kind of a non-dualistic mindset. I mean, it's a mindset that is less comparative and judgmental. But again, it doesn't mean that there, at the same time, there is a vision of greatness or success or accomplishment. It's not a whatever attitude. It's actually kind of a high achievement, low comparative and judgment. Again, it's aspirational, but I think it's also ordinary and practical. And I think that's why you trip me up, you know, the, asking me for those three, three words. I'm teasing you because to me, ordinary and extraordinary are, are really not so different. Wouldn't have described myself as extraordinary, but... <laughs> but I'm extraordinarily ordinary, I think. Well, I've definitely never heard that before. And <laughs> I, um, I'm really glad we kicked it off with this topic because, you know, I think about it a lot and it's interesting. I'm wondering if some of the folks that you've taught and the leaders that you've worked with in the past, if they can relate to this, but there's like an element of, it's almost as though that negative counter self-talk for many people can be so motivating to do better, to prove them wrong, to prove myself wrong, that there's like an element of fear of letting go of that, right? And to step into what you're describing as like a very non-dualistic reality with a vision still, but surrendering to the way that the path looks, right? Now, there's even a fair amount of science to show that that negative self-talk makes us dumber, actually. And it's a habit. It's interesting for many, many people, especially leaders, it's, it operates slightly below level of consciousness. But as soon as you dig in a little bit, there's a, a firm belief that I have to be hard on myself. That's how I accomplish things. And again, more and more, both research and those leaders that, that I find myself coaching, I will suggest try being kind for a week or two weeks. Just try it, really try it and see how that impacts your productivity. And it's never failed that we are more productive. Even it's it's hard to believe. Wait, we come from such a westernized European culture around these firm beliefs in that kind of being hard on ourselves. And it's hard to believe. But Again, I always say, try it, you know, don't, don't believe me, see what your own uh, experience is. Well, that is definitely a perfect segue to talking about compassion and your latest book, Finding Clarity, How Compassionate Accountability Builds Vibrant Relationships, Thriving Workplaces, and Meaningful Lives. For all those leaders out there who, who struggle with that. So I want to start by actually defining compassionate accountability? Because I think you actually started to speak to some of the detrimental effects of negative self-talk, but I'm curious, how does that apply to accountability? Because accountability feels like rigorous workout routines, you know, ruthless pursuit of a goal. Like how does compassion fit into that? Yeah. So accountability is all of those things, right? It's holding ourselves accountable. It's doing what we say we're going to do. It's with other people. It's holding each other accountable, having a clear vision of what success looks like, as well as how do we want to achieve success? What kind of culture do we want to be building with each other? All those things I think are important parts of accountability and it can be ruthless and it can be cold. This is where the compassion piece comes in or the 
kind accountability with kindness. Again, similar to all these kinds of examples that we've been talking about so far, that we are more productive, we are smarter, we collaborate better when there is compassion involved, when there's trust involved. The business world still is not quite ready for the word compassion. I've spoken a few times with, I've become friends with Kristen Neff, who's done a lot of research on self-compassion. And she's noticed that there often will be some pushback about that word in the business world. And she'll just substitute it with, you know, building inner strength, building inner strength. And I like, I like that. Or, or sometimes resilience training, you know, it's kind of a resilience. I like compassion, you know, and compassion is literally about feeling others' pain. It has an empathy part to it. And we know there's tremendous amount of research about how essential empathy is in the realm of leadership, right? Feeling, feeling the feelings of others, being able to read others. Compassion has that. And then in addition to feeling others' feelings, it's wanting to help, wanting to heal. So it has that, that kind of positive wanting to take some action to help other people. How beautiful, how important in, in the work world that we are there, that we've got each other's backs, right? That we're, we're both, you know, we're holding each other accountable. We're working with a sense of drive and urgency, and we're doing it with a kind of care and love of each other. It's like, man, who wouldn't want to work in a place like that? I would. And I love Kristen Neff and what you mentioned about resilience. But I got to say, I feel like compassion still feels different because of that empathy piece. Like resilience is like the ability to get back up, right? I do have to ask because I feel like it is so beautiful to chat about this right now, dig into compassionate accountability. But how does that look like when things are really hitting the fan, right? Like, and we're talking, you know, there are so many businesses out there and founders and employees of businesses that are struggling during this time. And it can feel like, and in some cases, this can be a reality, the next decision could be the end all be all, right? And we need all hands on deck. People really need to be applying themselves. How does that translate when that is the environment and the reality that we live in? Like, how does that look like on a practical level? If you can share some examples. Yeah. I mean, one example, and this is kind of radical. I actually talk about Boeing and, you know, Boeing as being a very successful, a culture that was, I'd say was very much a culture of uh, high accountability and high compassion. Again, this, there's many, many stories and I'm, there are many truths on this, but one truth is that little by little, the accountants sort of took over and the need to show financial success made for some decisions that got made that were lacking in a kind of accountability for safety. They stopped listening to engineers who were talking about various problems with the the software that they were creating. So it's interesting. I think one of the outcomes of compassionate accountability is the ability to hear all perspectives and the ability to to be attuned, you know, the empathic attunement. I've been in some pretty difficult situations myself in the business world. The first company that I started, which was a publishing company called Brush Dance, we did a dot-com expansion. I raised a lot of money to grow, you know, my dot-com business and our timing was perfectly bad. It all imploded 
right as we raised the first tranche of money. And I still remember I had hired a very expensive CEO and he walked into my office and told me that we were shutting the doors, that investors said there was no more money. This was a really, really hard time. And I actually ended up in that moment letting the CEO know that I had thought of this and we were not shutting the doors, but he had to leave and I had to let go of half of the staff in order to survive. And I had to negotiate with all of our vendors to give us time to pay back all the money that we owed people. It was a really, really difficult time. And I had had a number that was up there in one of my hardest times in the business world. And wonderful to be able to look back at these situations. Man, at the time, it was a real nail biter. This was my baby. This was a company that I had started and had been growing for, at the time, like 12 years. I've had my, you know, my share of real, real tough times. And I've always felt that accountability combined with compassion, it's the best medicine for working within even these really, really tough situations holding oneself and others accountable, alignment. So much of accountability is around not avoiding conflict and alignment. And what better way to do that than with a sense of empathy and compassion? I love that example you shared, because I know that that one is one that a lot of entrepreneurs run up against at all different stages of their business, where it's like, do I shut down? Do I keep going? What decision do I make? The stakes are high. And it's amazing to have you reflect on this example. And I'm curious, like, from where did you derive your inner strength and your compassion during that time? Like, practically speaking, how did you plug into that? Right. Because that can be hard. Like, I can imagine I would probably had struggle sleeping. Like, that's something I'm working on. So, like, what happened for you? You know, I think two things is I did have a really good support system of business friends, some board members, employees, people. I still remember that really difficult meeting. I think it was only happened one time where I pulled my staff together and said, I'm not sure we're going to have enough money to pay payroll. I'm doing everything I can, and I'm not sure we're going to make it through this. And I think there was a young man who at the time worked at the front desk and he came up to me, you know, afterwards and said, I want this company. I, I would invest. Um, I, I have a spare $150 that I would like to invest in the company. He had no idea that we needed half a million to survive at the time. But I say that in that kind of vulnerability that I was expressing and also that we had a mission. You know, we were making things out of recycled paper and we were spreading inspirational ideas. We were licensing, you know, the words of the Dalai Lama and the Thich Nhat Hanh. So it was a definitely a mission-driven business. I do write about this in the book, what I call Winston Churchill's three lessons for dealing with the most difficult problems. No sugarcoating, cautious optimism, and meaning and purpose. I think being able to plug those in as much as possible as partly, I think at the time, those were things I was plugging in, right? Just facing the facts. We're in trouble. We need this much money to survive. These are the facts. Man, they were hard. But continuing, you know, some sense of realistic, not rose-colored, not rose-colored optimism, but like, what's possible here? You know, who can support me? What do I need to do? 
And also the thing about meaning and meaning and purpose. During that time, I think it was um, not too long after I'd had that talk where a woman who was kind of one of my really key employees said, this is too stressful. She cannot continue to work in this environment and she was going to quit. I knew that if she quit, it was over because my investors were not going to invest more money in this company without her. She was a really key person. I said, why don't you go home for three days? Give me three days to raise the money. And if I can't raise the money in three days, you quit. You know, I did raise the money and she did come back. It's so fascinating because I feel like in many ways, there's this portrayal of being in the leadership seat as having the answers to everything. And, you know, almost like I think there is a definitely an element of shielding the team from everything that's happening. And you definitely have to, of course, provide some sort of air cover. But that honesty really, really draws people in and gives people the opportunity to trust you and show up with that same kind of authenticity and realness right back. No, it's a funny line, you know, although it's interesting to look at companies that so clearly cross the line, you know, Theranos comes up as an example, right? When things aren't working to completely hide the truth, cover the truth, downright lie to your employees and investors. There are times, you know, I've certainly been in many situations where I have not been as forthcoming with the, it's not like I would do that in every situation. You know, generally I do want to protect my employees from some of the difficulties and challenges that might be happening at a board level or financial, you know, so it's not like I wouldn't say I'm open book, but it's knowing, I think, doing it with as much integrity as you can muster, certainly not crossing lines that are lying to anyone. But so it's finding that right, that right mix of putting one's best foot forward and being totally truthful. So you also spoke just a second ago, actually, about aligning with that sense of purpose and that mission that really got you going. And you definitely mention this as part of a key part of leadership in the book. And I mean, especially here in Silicon Valley, it's all too easy to focus on just the end state, right? And very frequently, there's like this perception of if I raise X number of dollars, like I've made it not, I guess you've made it to raise the money, but that's just the very beginning. And I'm curious for any leaders in any stage, maybe entrepreneurial or leaders within an organization who are listening to this, how can folks start to tie back into their personal mission and bring that into the workforce in your experience? Yeah, I think in some way, never been more important that people open up to, are you helping or are you harming? Are you helping or are you harming? Now, again, these are, our systems are such that it's hard. Almost whatever we do these days can have some harm. You know, every time we get in our car, I don't care whether it's an electric car, we've built a society that putting a lot of strains on larger systems. We also have created ways of working and cultures that often can, you know, are you a stress maker or are you a stress healer in your workplace, right? Can you somehow attune yourself or commit that the mission of what you're doing is somehow making the world better in some way, both externally and internally, internally meaning within your organization? 
I regularly find myself challenging leaders to ask those questions. It can't just be all about me. If it's all about me and how I'm going to maximize my wealth, that's got us into this mess that we're in about people acting just from that place with and leaving out the the larger perspective of the we. Absolutely. And especially for anybody who is a leader or is in a position of leadership of any kind, the we isn't just the end user and the outcome on earth, right? But it's also your team and then the ripple effects of that. That's so, so, so powerful. I got to ask though, there are some people who might be listening to this who are dabbling into this part of the world who might be thinking to themselves, I have been so heads down focusing on X in my life. I feel disconnected from my mission. How can they tap back into that? Because that's not very easy always to recognize. And I can even reflect on times in my life where I had worked so hard or you know, kind of push myself so hard, definitely listening to that negative voice more than anything that was true for me, that I became completely lost from that. And there was a point where I woke up and I was like, well, what am I doing here? Like, is this the life that I'm creating? Like, is this what it is? Right. And I'm certain that there are some people out there listening to this who feel that way, who might be in very important leadership positions right now. How can they tap back into their mission? Yeah. Well, I was also thinking it can be really hard if when you're in survival mode, if you are struggling, you know, to pay the rent, struggling to feed your family, these questions become really, really difficult, not impossible, but difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I started, my first company was, you know, making things out of recycled paper and it was really hard for many years getting, you know, having it be financially viable. To me, it really helped to be on a mission, to keep coming back to the the mission. You know, I think it comes with asking yourself those larger questions again and again, even if if you're not in a position to be totally in alignment. But to me, the aspiration is to be able to ask, you know, why am I here on the planet? What is it that brought me here? What am I here to do? What problems am I here to to solve. And how's it going? How am I doing in that realm? Where am I aligned? Could there be more alignment? And what do I need to do to move in any way toward this greater alignment? These are complex questions. We all have many, many motivations. You know, when I was running my first company, we started making t-shirts and we had two lines. We had one line of organic cotton t-shirts And as an experiment, we had another line of kind of just regular t-shirts. And as disappointing as it was, nobody wanted the organic cotton t-shirts back then, just because they cost a little more. It didn't make sense for me to be in the t-shirt business, I discovered, because I couldn't sell things that were not aligned with my values. And customers were not ready to pay more money for something that was more environmentally sound. These are hard. It's hard having strong aspirational values and aligning with them. I will say, as somebody who has been on a personal journey for the past year and a half of rediscovering that for myself, there is something almost freeing, like once you tap back into that and you know that this is where you're operating from around the decisions that you make, how you choose to show up and the things you say yes to versus walk away from. And at least for myself, I have found that when I am kind of to your earlier point of 
moving from a place of open-heartedness and surrender, which I will emphasize is not the case all the time. Like, let's be clear. But when I am, there is this element of ease in my life. Like I could be working just as hard, but the experience of it, it's not as tumultuous. It's not as like do or die. I don't feel like I'm in a war, which is really how I felt for frankly, the past 11 years of my life, which is crazy, crazy, Mark. This is where, to me, I think I want to bring in some of, again, my own thinking and some of the language from spiritual practice or from Zen practice. I think it's a major shift in how one approaches all parts of your life. Are you living by habit energy? You know, are you living by the way that you've been conditioned by the conditioning of your parents and society? Or are you living by vow? Are you living by a deeper sense of vow to be awake, to heal, to help, to connect? And to me, that is a huge life shift and approach that changes everything. Even if you can ignite and awaken that aspiration, it's an aspiration. And I like the word aspiration, you know, it has breath, you know, the spire part is breath. And it's kind of living within your breath in a way and not pretending as though that doesn't exist, waking up to that deeper purpose, not in any sort of, you know, woo-woo way, but in a real way to embody it. Mark, I could continue speaking with you for hours, but we are running out of time. (laughs) I would love for you to share with our audience, where can they find you? Where can they find your beautiful new book? Finding Clarity, How Compassionate Accountability Builds Vibrant Relationships, Thriving Workplaces, and Meaningful Lives. Where can they find it? And I'm going to deep link it all below in the show notes, so don't worry. Uh, You can get the book anywhere. Books are sold these days, Uh, really. It's amazing. Easy. (laughs) And you can find me. My website is marklesser.net, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. And I've got lots of writing there and guided meditations. And it's I'm trying to make it a place that has uh, some value. You have an amazing newsletter, by the way. I'm going to shout that out because I read it every single week. So Now on Substack. Ooh, I like it. And my podcast. My podcast is called Zen Bones. <laughs> I love that one too. I'm very busy achieving. You are. Ordinary way. <laughs> Achieving in an ordinary way. I love it. Mark, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone for tuning in and see you next time. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Nourish. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review. Five-star reviews help the podcast grow, and I'm so grateful for that. I publish new episodes twice a month, so hit the subscribe button to be notified. And if you want to stay connected in between episodes, join my community on Instagram and TikTok at nourish underscore podcast. All right, that's all I got for you today. See you next time.